We need stories. We need God's story as revealed in the Bible. And if you were here last week, you've heard me talk about how I think we have misunderstood the story. And the task of understanding and interpreting the Bible, the task of interpreting the Bible well and understanding the story has never been more important. It's an urgent task, I suggest to you. And arguably, no book has been more misinterpreted than the book of Genesis. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of that book this month. And we're going to be doing that with the help of some very qualified people. Um, And mostly I'm referring to Ian Proven, who many of you know is a former capper and is presently the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College. So I will not be here next week, but Ian will be here with you Uh, and continuing this series on Genesis, the story of dot, dot, dot. Ian, as well, will be taking some consecutive Thursday nights starting on January 26th to talk about, to help us to live into this story. What What might it look like for us to live by the story of Genesis? And so it's going to be a very interactive time, lots of um, intergenerational discussion, we hope. And the first one is going to be on Thursday, January 26th. I think it will be at Sutherland Church. I'm not 100% confirmed on that, but if you check your cap last this week, uh, that will be confirmed. So many of you are probably thinking, oh, I know that story. Like, I've heard that story before. I've been to Sunday school for years. Or even if I haven't been to Sunday school, I know the story. The world gets created. People screw it up. And then there's this big flood where God tries to wipe up every wipe out everybody except for one person and his family. You know, blah de blah de blah. That's some of the story. But of course, there's so much to that story. How many of you here know that the story of God creating the world and a flood taking place in the world, how many of you know that that creation narrative that we see in Genesis is not actually the only one that exists? Did any of you know that there are lots of ancient Near Eastern creation slash flood narratives that were circulating at the time of Genesis? Any of you knew that that's, that the Genesis is not the only creation flood story? Anyone? Oh, lots of you knew that. And First Nations, too. So, especially if we look at when we think Genesis was written, there were a lot of stories that bear remarkable similarities to that story we read in Genesis. So on the one hand, oh yeah, it's nothing special. A lot of people knew that. Now, initially, when I heard that there were these other kind of narratives, these other stories that were really similar to that biblical story in Genesis, I thought, ooh, that... That makes that biblical story less unique. Like, I don't know about you, but my initial, when I heard that initially, I was a little bit threatened by that. But as I learned more and as I read more, I began to see that there are lots of similarities, similarities which make you pay attention to the story. But the differences between those other Mesopotamian creation narratives and the Genesis one, the differences are small but really significant. 
And the differences actually highlight the kind of story that I think the author of Genesis was trying to tell us. So today, because we're going to be doing a little bit of, a little bit of comparing between the Genesis story and the other creation stories that existed at the time, we're going to see, I hope, that this is a story of God's goodness. Okay, so here are the similarities. In both stories, God or gods exist. Both sets of stories create the world from nothing. In both stories, humans are created from something kind of earthy, something in the ground, clay or dust. In some of the creation stories that, that are contrasted with the Genesis one, even uh, human beings are referred to as being in the image of God, which is interesting. So, not, so Genesis is not the only narrative that talks about human beings being made in the image of God. Both, uh, both sets of narratives depict this big flood decreed by the gods where one person and their family is saved and they survive by building a boat. Interesting. The two big differences, which we're going to be talking about today, one is the trajectory of humanity, and the other one is the character of God. All right, you with me so far? We good? First one, the trajectory of humanity. So in these other creation stories, the one that's not in Genesis, things keep getting better and better. So if I was going to chart it on a graph, it'd be like, woo, we started okay, but then things just keep getting better and better, and we achieve more, and humanity just keeps on doing amazing, wonderful things. Kind of like humanistic optimism, right? Things were not nearly as good to begin with as they have become since. That's kind of what those other creation narratives, the one that's not in Genesis, seem to suggest. The biblical account, it's kind of more like, ooh, we start and it's really good and there's shalom and then it's like, things do not keep getting better and better. The recurring refrain at the beginning of Genesis, God declares what he has created good and then he creates human beings and they're very good. And that word good and that word very good, it's a word that doesn't just describe this kind of moral abstract pronouncement. It's this, it's this notion of, oh, and the connections between everything were very good, forcefully good. There's an emphasis on an inherent goodness, not of just those things separately, but on their ways of relating to one another. This is how things are meant to be. Shalom. After Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, we see the systemic breakdown of that goodness, that connectedness. Remember how we talked about connectedness in in the fall? God's gift of connectedness between one another, between us and God, between us and creation, all those connections start to break down. It's like ripples in a pond radiating outwards from that one initial choice of Eve to eat that fruit. 
It's not the fall, as we understand it, that act in the garden, although we refer to it as the fall. It's actually a series of falls. It's more than one fall. It's rebellious act after rebellious act after rebellious act. In the span of 11 chapters of Genesis, starting in chapter 1 and going to 11, we start in the Garden of Eden. That, that word Eden literally means delight. The Garden of Delight in chapter 1 to the disconnection and loneliness and total scattering of nations in the city in chapter 11. Total disconnection from one to the other. No longer very good. There's a theologian who's named Cornelius Plantinga, and he's written a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's a book about sin, and one of his chapters talks about sin as human vandalism of God's shalom. We wrecked it. Human vandalism of God's shalom. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So in contrast to those parallel creation accounts where everything keeps getting better and better, things in Genesis keep getting worse and worse. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And so consider for a moment, friends, those two worldviews. One, we're doing better and better. We're getting better and better. Or things are getting worse and worse. After the week that we have had in the news and even locally here on the North Shore, I wonder if you can compare those worldviews and see which one resonates more with you. It's surprising, perhaps, that things keep getting worse and worse, or this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's surprising, maybe, that that's a biblical message, because we think about hope being in the gospel. We think about hope in God, and that hope is beginning, certainly, even in those early chapters of Genesis. But the Bible is clear throughout the book, actually, and Genesis is clear and Genesis explains the condition of the world by saying this is not the way it was meant to be. So that's the first thing, the first difference between those parallel creation accounts and Genesis. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And here is where the hope comes. Here's where the other significant difference comes. The character of God. So in those parallel narratives, there was sometimes one God, but there was often multiple gods. And those multiple gods were kind of immature, kind of self-interested jerks. There's no better word for it. Humanity wasn't created out of love. These gods, most of them, created humanity as a food source. They needed something to eat. They needed some people to do their bidding. And the flood, all those creation narratives that have floods in them, they, uh, they are sent by the gods because all oh, those humans are getting annoying and they're multiplying and they're getting noisy. So let's just send a flood and wipe them out. And one person does get saved, but in some accounts, that one person who gets saved He's preserved because he happens to worship the God who disagreed about the flood to begin with. So even the gods can't agree whether that flood 
ought to happen. And the one person who survives just happens to be on the right side of a God who didn't like what the other gods had decided to do. And hopefully, without me even spelling it out for you, you hear the contrast, the character of those gods versus the character of the God in Genesis. Because the character of the God in Genesis is good. This God, this Genesis God, creates out of love. He celebrates what has been created, including human beings, as being so good. Humanity, in fact, is seen as God's crowning achievement, the pinnacle of his creation. And interestingly, he doesn't create humans for a food source. He actually provides food for the humans. And God is moral. God has a moral compass. God's actions are motivated by a sense of right and wrong, not self-interest. So God sends the flood because God is grieved by humanity's actions. He's not annoyed at their noise or annoyed that they're multiplying. He's grieved at their wickedness. And Noah is saved because he's righteous, not because he was on the right side of the right God. God is compassionate. At every successive fall of humanity that's documented, God demonstrates mercy. And in fact, every human rebellious act becomes a showcase for God's goodness. We see God's intent on limiting the consequences of human sin. And here's where we, here's where we turn to some scripture to illustrate my point. Notice each time God's response when human beings screw up. God's first words to Adam and Eve, for example, as they hide in fear after eating the fruit, does God condemn them? Does God shout out angry words? No. He asks a question. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? I mean, God knows where they are, right? For goodness sake, he created the garden, he created them. But it's a question of invitation. And it's gentle. I can remember Rod preaching on your Shalom series and you, you uh, imitated God by saying, where are you? God's searching out for his children. God doesn't shame or condemn Adam and Eve's disobedience, but he covers their shame. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He's not like, you guys screwed up. You don't deserve any clothes. You did what I did tell you to do. No, he, 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 he seeks after them, and then he covers their shame. Now, God does kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, sure enough, but he does that to limit the consequences of their sin. Genesis 3, to 23, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. 
So I'm sure it sounds harsh. It, it is harsh that God is exiling Adam and Eve from the garden, but it's for, it's for a redemptive purpose. He's trying to limit the consequences of their sin. We even see in the midst of Cain's terrible sin of murdering his brother, God tries to mitigate the consequences of that sin. The Lord does punish Cain, and in response, Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear in Genesis 4, chapter 13. Genesis chapter 4, verse 13. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. God protecting. God sending the flood but preserving one family and animals. I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. Now, I picked those verses to illustrate to you that this is a good God. But I have to confess to you that reading those verses, they catch in my throat a bit. Because maybe some of you careful listeners, or maybe if you've read the book of Genesis for yourself, you're going, really? This is a good God? Sounds more like a bully to me. Sounds more like one of those gods you were talking about before who just destroys people on a whim. I understand the objections to my suggestion that God is good. And there are many other biblical references in the book of Genesis that I left out. Examples where God does seem to curse in response to Adam and Eve's transgression, he does seem to curse. He curses the serpent. He tells Eve about childbearing being difficult. He says, Adam, there's going to be toil and work now. Really, Kim, that's a good God? And of course, there's that Tower of Babel story where God scatters the nations because he doesn't like it that they're trying to build a tower. There's no easy response to these things. We do need to hear the story on its own terms and against the backdrop of the other stories of their time. And I do tell you right off the top, without even addressing any of those specific concerns, the Genesis story does depict a way better God than any of those other stories. That's a starting point. But consider this. What if I told you, what if I was your parent... And I said this to you. Okay, listen, you don't want to throw that hammer up in the air, okay? Because if you throw that hammer up in the air, it might fall down and hit you on the head, and you might get a concussion, and there's going to be lots of blood everywhere, and we might need to take you to the hospital, and you might need stitches, and you might, ha you might have to lie in a dark room for a long time to get better, and there might even be brain damage. So don't throw the hammer up in the air. Now, is that a threat? Am I threatening you? Or are, 
Is that me describing the natural consequences of your actions? It could be that in some of those places in Genesis, we see God not cursing, but describing. Maybe God's not prescribing how it's going to go and cursing, but maybe God is describing the natural consequences of transgression. Maybe. But you can bring all your objections and your questions to Ian next week when I won't be here. I think I just wanted to do that little sidebar to tell you, I know it's not clear or as clear as we might like it. We have to be attentive, we have to be thoughtful, and we have to approach scripture with a a posture of trust, even with our very real and big questions. So let's go back to my point for this morning. The two ways in which the Genesis account differs from those other accounts Humanity and where it's headed and the character of God. This is a story that holds two seemingly contradictory truths together. This is not the way it's supposed to be and God is good. And I suggest to you that perhaps not just the book of Genesis but the entire book of the Bible requires us to hold those two things together and maybe even the Christian life, and maybe even your life this week. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and God is good. I want to leave you with one verse, one verse in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, that gave me a hint of this. A verse that I'd never really read before because I tend to skip over those genealogies, probably like many of you. There are lots of really good reasons why those genealogies are there. And here is a gem. Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Can you see there the tension between those two things? An acknowledgement that there's been a curse. The painful toil of life. This is not how it's supposed to be. And yet also, in the words of this father, there's hope. The hope that we all have as parents when our children enter the world and we say, this one. The world is going to be different because of this one. Hope for the future. God is still good. And of course, Lamech's words point not just to the effects of the curse of the painful toil, but maybe even as Lamech remembers the curse, he remembers the promise that the seed of Adam will one day crush the head of the serpent. And of course, we know as readers of the Bible that read just, not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, that there is an answer to that promise. That the decisive climax in the story is that Jesus, son of Adam, does decisively 
defeat evil. And so there's a now but not yet reality in that time for us. That we know that God is good. We know that Jesus has come. We know that Jesus has made things right with the world. And yet, 167 people die in a plane crash. And a high school student with lots of hope and promise for his future is gone. This is not how it's supposed to be. But God is good. So friends, I'm going to invite Andrew to come up now, and I'm going to invite you in the quiet of your hearts to sit with the things in your life right now and in your world that are not right. Things that when I say this is not how it's supposed to be, things that come to mind when I say those words. So just sit with those things for a moment and then I will remind you of the goodness of God from Psalm 103 and then we'll sing. In the midst of all the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of our lives, in the midst of all the ways in which creation has been broken. We bring to you all of these things and these burdens and we say to you, God, this is not how we know it should be. And in the same breath, we can declare to you with broken hearts and halting voices, but trust in you. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Oh God, we cast ourselves upon your goodness. Show us your goodness, we pray.